Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? But don't worry, I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Iana's determination to transcend her past and achieve wholeness led Iana to publish the Namaya's Cipher Report to provide a voice to the voiceless and hope for people who may be facing challenging situations. The publication strives to be nonpartisan about religion and politics, though these topics are often reported upon. There are many sides to every story and untold experiences of people living in countries with oppressive governments, conflict, or religious intolerance. Countries where women and children are particularly at risk and human rights abuses seem to be the norm. Yet, even in the midst of unimaginable hardship, perseverance abounds, hope persists, and people prevail. Ayanna, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Hi, 
thanks a lot. Um, I appreciate you having me on the show today, Michael. Well, thank you for joining us, especially on this holiday weekend. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I was reading a little bit about your bio and about, you know, the Niamis type of report. And, you know, it, it sounds a lot like what I started out to do as far as trying to, you know, give a, a voice to people as well as focus on things where they, they may be left out or may not be the height of the news cycle, but important stories nonetheless. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, having lived in Africa and traveled extensively um, outside of the U.S., there are so many things that are happening that don't make it to the regular news cycle um, in the U.S., um, other than war or pictures of children with distended stomachs and famine areas, you know, really digging down into what these people's lives are like on the ground is often overlooked or it's not newsworthy. So right now it's about Syria and that's a horrific, you know, tragedy that's going on in Aleppo and, you know, you're seeing all these children and we tune into it for, you know, a minute or two and then we go back to our lives, but these people have to continue to live with it. And also not every life in these environments are horrific. So with regard to Zimbabwe, you know, there's a lot of negative news coverage of Zimbabwe. And the government, um, there are challenges certainly with that, but the people really incredibly wonderful. They um, are, have integrity. They persevere. They're some of the most hardworking people that I've, I've ever met. So it's important to have their stories told, um, otherwise uh, people just gloss over and their voices aren't heard because not everyone is bad and not every situation is horrific. Yeah, yeah. And you have an amazing story. Um, when I was reading your bio, um, you have a life experience that very few have and some of the transitions and challenges that you've experienced in your life are, are just amazing. Um, so give us a little background starting from your childhood up and just tell us how you've, you know, come up and had some of these life experiences and we're able to use these to shape who you are today. Sure. Um, so I was born in the States, although I spent my formative years in East and West Africa, but I was born in the States, and my father um, had a very unique uh, background um, in that he came from the Deep South, um, from Mississippi, and so he lived under uh, Jim Crow, extreme mm. segregation, and the extrajudicial killing that a lot of black men are uh, facing today, um, and which the Black Lives Matter is talking about. But he came up and through that environment and was able to um, conquer that and and get his Ph.D. in physics from um, the Ohio State University. However, at that time, he became radicalized um, at that university because he recognized that, you know, black men were oppressed and they had to take action to be able to throw this oppression off and achieve their fullest potential. So we um, were members, uh, became uh, members of Nation of Islam. Uh, he converted us. And um, we 
was also became more radical and belonged to different organizations. We, uh, we knew a lot of people. He affiliated with um, the Black Panther movement. And uh, eventually, because of his uh, intellect, like I said, he um, was a physicist and a mathematician and had a Ph.D., uh, he became uh, too much of a threat. So he decided, or rather he came home one day and said, if I don't leave this country, they're going to kill me. So we expatriated. Who would kill him? But became the government. a threat to who? Oh, I the see. The government. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we expatriated, or he expatriated, and we went with him, and we ended up in Nigeria. And he um, got a job there as the head of the mathematics and physics program at a university of then was called Ileife, and um, it was in Yoruba. Um, country or territory. He had a lot of conflict there, as he often did, because when we went there, he thought that Africa would have only black people there, or the predominant of black Africans there. So because uh, Nigeria and many other places were just coming out of colonialism, they still had that contingent there. So he um, didn't it, he didn't um, meld well? So we subsequently left Nigeria, and uh, in a month-long journey across the continent in a Peugeot 504, which was amazing in and of itself, we ended up in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And uh, he liked Dar es Salaam. I mean, he liked Tanzania because then President Julius Nyerere was a strong Pan-Africanist. And um, ultimately, even though my dad was Islamist and converted us to um, a a more stringent Sharia form of Islam when we were in Nigeria, ultimately his passion was Pan-Africanism and the freedom for black men to realize their full potential and to um, not be subjugated to terrorism and tyranny. So that was how we ended up in Tanzania. And um, we subsequently, my mother and, and my sister and myself, she escaped with us from Tanzania back to America um, because, unfortunately, like uh, some African-American men who have not, who have been demeaned and subjugated, that sometimes breaks them. And in so doing, they take out all of their anger on their family. And Mm -hmm. so my father became very abusive, physically Mm -hmm. abusive and mentally abusive. And um, he, he just tried to kill my mom. So when, he was, when we were in Nigeria still, he, he beat my mom mercilessly within an inch of her life, and then he tried to hang her. And, well, um, before we get back to that part, I just want to go back to there's a transition point that took place. Now, was your father like this before he left? And I know that once in Nigeria and West Africa, you guys converted to Sunni Islam. Was there a difference? Yeah, was because, there a difference in him? I'm sorry, 
sorry, Michael, go ahead. Oh, no, no. That was my question. Was there a difference in him that you could see because of that transition? Yes, first and foremost, it was kind of like um, when Malcolm X, after Malcolm X made the Hajj, um, when he made the Hajj, he recognized that Islam is a um, a faith um, a faith that encompasses all people, all ethnicities, and so the nation of Islam, although it was it it was centric to the African American experience and movement, it also had that. Um, um, central focus on an individual versus on the faith and on mm-hmm. Allah. Um, mm-hmm. And so just like Malcolm X, in terms of that awakening, when my father left um, the U.S., and when we left the U.S., he recognized that Nation of Islam was not the um, truest form of Islam. When we were here, he raged against the system, so that was different. His his um, his ire and uh, his reaction to how to the abuses that he witnessed um, and, and grew up under in uh, the Deep South, he was able to rail against the system or rage against the system here in the states, which made him a threat. But once we moved to Africa, that changed and morphed into the more patriarchal aspects of Islam, where the women and children are the actual property of any male, whether that's a husband or a brother or an uncle. And therefore, as chattel, they are, you know, the men are free to do with them and to determine their futures as they will. So that um, faith, the way that that faith was enacted, enabled him to redirect his rage into um, a place where he could feel uh, like a more powerful man and like Mm -hmm. a true Mm -hmm. man because through Islam, through that expression of Islam. Now, I I heard an interview um... And I heard your mom speak, and um, it's very apparent she's a very strong woman. How did she help transition you guys through this? I know things changed drastically for you. Um, how, how was it? How did she hope to guide you guys through this? And we can talk about then the transition thereafter. Well, one of the things is that my mother is um, an ordained Baptist minister. And she never changed her faith. Mm. We, did, we as children, we lived fully as Muslims, and, and she did too to all outward appearance, but she never changed her faith. So it was that faith that kept her strong and gave her the ability to protect us from the worst of his abuses and anger. Um, I remember, for example, whenever he would uh, leave the house and, you know, there had been some violence in the house and there was always, you know, um, mental 
uh, abuse as well. But whenever he would leave to go to teach or to, to do whatever, she would put Mahalia Jackson on. And mm. Mahalia Jackson, she would play her albums over and over again. And the interview to which you reference, one of the songs um, that she, you know, sings is about troubles. One day my troubles will be gone. And so that kind of strengthened my mother. And me mm-hmm. listening to that, that that strengthened me um, because trouble doesn't last always. Um, but when you're in the midst of it, it it's extremely difficult with regard to that interview, one of the things that my mother and I discussed was how I um, almost died from cerebral malaria. Right, and right. He, and and was, take us through that quickly and then lead us up to what transpired afterwards, because this is a tipping point. Um, this is um, a moment where there were really no other choices left. Um, it was a point where your mother just had to make a way. And and just tell us about what happened in those events. So we um, arrived in Tanzania. And and actually, one of the things I I like to to share and make sure that people understand is, although these are some terrible things that I may relate, there were so many beautiful things that happened as well. So for me, Mm -hmm. I always think of um, Bahari Beach in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, as the most idyllic place in the world. That's my idea. But at the same time, concurrent to that, I um, contracted malaria, cerebral malaria, and it has one of the highest mortality rates um, for children. And my father would not let my mother um, take me to the hospital to get treatment. Um, initially it was because you don't need white man medicine, and then it just morphed into I don't care about her. And um, at that point he simply referred to me as my mother's child versus their child. And a large part of that came about because I tried to um, kill him, and, and it wasn't deliberate. I was just trying to stop him from killing my mother. But you know, had I been successful, I probably would have killed him. After that point, that occurred in Nigeria. So after that, our relationship changed significantly, and he just no longer acknowledged me as his daughter. Thus, he would not well, allow me to you, get help. You have to tell us what happened in that incident as well. Um, you know, everyone's ears are burning right now about that. What happened, and how old were you? I was about nine years old, and we were living in Ileife, and we were living in um, staff quarters. And um, my mom used to sneak out when he was gone. She would save money. He controlled all the money, but she would save money and put it aside because she wanted us to have enough nutrition. She would go buy meat. Well, he found out that she had gone to the market and purchased meat and had not asked for his permission to leave. And so he was seething about that. And then someone, it might have been me, whatever, we put a a glass of water in the freezer and the glass broke. So he started screaming about that and then he was going to beat me. And my mom was like, you have 
you are not going to touch her, not one more time. And so she yelled at us to to run, to run and hide. It was a very, very big apartment. And um, we ran and hid in the back of the apartment, but we could hear her, you know, screaming, and he was beating her, and she was begging for her life, and she was begging for our lives, too, for him to not hurt us. And um, my brother and sister, they're a year and a half younger than I, and they're twins, and I told them to stay where we we had hidden, and and I was going to go out and see what was going on. And just before I made that decision, it became deathly silent in the in, in the entire apartment. It was just silent. So I made my way to the, the front um, where the door was, and there was a kitchen there. And in Africa, as in the islands, you know, you hang plantains from the ceiling, from the rafters to ripen. And I was looking for my parents. I couldn't find them. And I entered the kitchen, and my father had my mother on a, a, a stool, and her eye was shut. Her eyes were, she was so badly beaten, her eyes were swollen mm. shut, and she had teeth missing. And, you know, it was like she was resigned to, to death. And he had put the noose around her head, and he was going to kick the stool out from under her. So I grabbed one of the um, can, uh, bell glass. Jars, you know, like you use in the South, the canned uh, preserves, peaches and stuff. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. had some of those. And I broke it, and I was going to just stab them in the stomach. I mean, I was a little girl. And uh, just that, doing that action, he looked away. He looked in absolute, you know, he couldn't believe. And it gave my mother, she, her one eye, I remember her looking at me. Mm-hmm. And it gave her the strength to take the noose off of her neck and climb down, and 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 from that point forward, he, it was like he never forgave me. And um, for my part, there was a Jesuit priest who I'm sorry, Anglican priest who lived um, above us, and in Africa, you know, everything, the apartments and the windows, they're all open, so you could hear everything. So everyone heard him. Mm-hmm. But nobody did anything. Finally, he comes down, knocks on the door, and asks, my father opens the door and asks, is everything okay? And I run to him, and I'm grabbing his little cassock, and I'm saying, you tried to kill my mommy, you tried to kill my mommy. And he looked at my dad and said, is everything okay? And my dad said, oh, yeah, it's fine. And I couldn't believe it. And I said, no, you don't understand. He's trying to kill my mommy. And he looked at me and he said, when you grow up, you will understand this is how it is between men and women. And that mm. really, you know, shook me. So, wow. Michael, wow. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> now we have to give people some relief and talk about how you guys were able <laughs> to get away from that situation. <laughs> yes, God. indeed. Well, like I said, we were in Tanzania, and uh, my mom has often said, you know, it took her three years of planning to get us uh, 
to escape back with us back to uh, America. But she said the day she made that decision, she was as good as gone. Three years mm-hmm. later, it took her to affect it. And my, what had happened, it was coming to the end of the um, school semester, and my father went to school, and my mother, she had been planning, and she had gotten us new passports because he confiscated our passports. He controlled all the money, movements, everything. And so she dressed us up. I remember, and we, we lived in a beautiful home. It was absolutely beautiful, and it was on the top of this hill. Um, it was called Killalaney Lane. And um, she bought us new clothes, and she said, oh, we're going to go, we're going to have an adventure. That's how she put it, we're going to have an adventure. And so a cab comes and takes us, and we drive to a hotel, and we are there for a couple of hours. So I asked my mom, you know, what's going on? And she told me, she did not share with my brother and sister, but she told me that we were leaving and we both knew, my mom and I knew, that if he caught us, that he would kill her. And he probably would kill me because he really just wanted my sister and brother, more my brother than my sister, because, you know, the males have um, the most important, especially in patriarchal societies and also in Islam. Um, so it was like a gut-wrenching time. We waited till it got close to uh, the time for our flight to depart. And then we took a taxi to the airport. And we get to the airport, and that was the most difficult time. And when we get there, the customs official, who was friends with my father, was oh. sick that day. Yeah, he was sick wow. that day. And, uh, you know, it it was amazing. So... She is dealing with this new customs officer or replacement customs officer, and he was like, well, where is your document that shows that, you know, from your husband that's giving you permission to take his son and take his children? And she was like, well, you know, I, I don't have it. He said it was okay. And he looks at her and he says, you know what, I'm going to try and call him. So he tried to call my dad, and we were just – I. I have never been, like, so sick Mm. and afraid in my life. But Mm. he called and couldn't get through, and he called and called and couldn't get through. And then he said, okay, well, I guess it's okay. And we went through, you know, customs, went through the boarding gate, and it was just, I I can't even tell you the level of, of terror that was there. And every voice I heard, like a person yelling to get the attention of some family member or traveling companion. I thought that was him. Mm. We finally um, walk across the hot tarmac. That was the days when you walked across the tarmac to get on the plane. And we flew Pan Am. And we get on the plane. And finally, I'm like, okay, you know, it's going to be okay. And I'm looking out the window, expecting him to run across the tarmac at any moment, and it didn't happen. And so the plane starts taxiing, and all of a sudden it stops. And I'm thinking he had arrived. He had arrived at the airport. And it turns out that 
there was something else that was going on, and eventually the plane taxied and we took off. But he had arrived at the airport, but it was just too late. We were gone. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) What an amazing story. So when you guys left, where did you go? Where were you headed to? Um, We flew into uh, Heathrow, uh, London, stayed Mm. there with um, some uh, people that we knew that were helping, people that my mom knew that were uh, helping her. At that time in Tanzania, there were a lot of expats, and there were a lot of um, African-American expats. And it was kind of the oddest thing because when the men – took their wives there, they were African-American. But living there and having that level of freedom, they adopted the um, the mores of the culture. So a lot of mm-hmm. them took second wives. <laughs> and so consequently, many of these African-American wives came back to the States. And one of the people oh. that we stayed with was a um, woman who was also leaving her husband to come back to the States. Um, when we got back to the States, um, we came to Washington, D.C. Um, my mother is from Washington, D.C., and um, her father, my grandfather, was a um, very well-known civil rights attorney. And um, he we came, he had passed when my mother was um still in high school, but we came back and we stayed uh, with my grandmother and um, for a period of time until she was able to uh, get a place for us to um, to live. And, and then we uh, moved to the Maryland area, and we uh, all got scholarships to um, you know, private schools, really good private schools, academic scholarships. And, you know, she worked tirelessly, you know, two and three jobs and until she was able to finally get a job with um, Peace Corps. So she became a regional desk officer for East Africa. And um, it was something that was unheard of at that time because she didn't have a um, degree, you know. She had not be- – because she – had raised her children and was a wife, and um, she had sublimated herself to my father, and she had put her um, educational dreams on hold. Um, So it was an amazing thing that she was able to get that job. And so that's how, you know, she supported us. And um, we subsequently... Um, and like my brother ended up going to Princeton, my sister to Cornell. I went to a small liberal arts college um, named Bates, which is, um, and I went on the Benjamin E. Mays scholarship, and, which, and Benjamin E. Mays um, was a famous uh, African-American um, uh, educator, and, it, you know, it was just, it was challenging, but it kind of was a continuation, uh, the dream and the mission, like of W.D.B. Du Bois, you know. Mm, um, through yeah. education, one achieves or one can achieve freedom, education and exposure to the world. I mean, that's, that's really um, 
a necessary requirement to helping you view people not as the other but as yourself because to someone else you are that other but if you if they look at you as themselves and you look at them as yourself because we're all human a lot of these atrocities that happen wouldn't mm, wow you know coming back to the states um i can see how it would be an easy transition for you to seek a new religion after that point but um tell us a little bit about that next transition and then we're going to talk a little bit more about what you've accomplished since then as well. But since we've talked so much and give so much insight too about what your life was like going through these various changes, I wanted to sort of explore that. Okay. Well, um, when I graduated from uh, college, I ended up uh, coming back to D.C. And I was always very entrepreneurial and I had a, um, an art business an art gallery in the D.C. area. Really? And wow. I actually, yeah, I was actually, I was very young, I was like 24, 25, and I was featured wow. in a full-page spread on the front of the uh, Washington Post style section. So that was when Jurassic Park was out. So Jeff Goldblum was up top, and I was down at the bottom. Um, wow. And it, yeah, at that time, I'd aspired to be, like Leo Castelli, because my position was there is no such thing as black art or white art. There's just art. And um, unfortunately, we've allowed ourselves to be marginalized, I believe, by by only painting certain things and by calling those items which we are art which we create black art there is a place for that but you know one of the artists that i represent his name is Simi knox and he has painted um portraits of most of the first families and when you mm-hmm. and he did trump the oil and when you looked at his work you could not tell what his ethnicity was because he was classically trained and it was just beautifully rendered. So that was one of my um, goals, take African-American art and elevate it so it wasn't um, attached to an ethnicity or Mm. a particular cultural experience because not everyone has the experience, and they quoted me, you know, of playing in a fire hydrant in the you know, what is euphemistically termed as the ghetto, you know, not that I didn't have that experience. So um, it's disingenuous for me to to identify with that um, or to try and even explain that. And, and that's one of the things about African-American culture. I mean, we're not monolithic. No culture is monolithic. And when one views it as such, it's, it's easy to um, to dismiss. And uh, and once again, to be inhuman. Um, so from there, I went to Miami, and I lived in Miami uh, for a number of years. And uh, then my son was born. I got married, and um, my son was born. And uh, there, it was, there was a tragedy, and uh, we oh. lost his father. Mm. And um, my 
you know, where do people go? You know, most people, if you had a good mother, if you, you, if you had a praying mother or a fighting mother, when mm-hmm. things go wrong, you just go back to your mother. And and that's what I did. I, I left Miami, I left Florida, and I, I came up here with my infant son. He was like two weeks old and moved in with my mother. And um, so that was a very long, hard journey um, mm. to to reclaim my life. And it was during that time I began to... Um, look at the choices that I'd made and how I arrived at those choices, the role that my childhood played, um, the role that faith played, um, what I was going to do, what kind of mother I would be, you know, because I, I was devastated, but I knew I had to be strong for my son. And, um, Thank God my mom was there because at that time I just couldn't do it, but she did. She she stood in the gap as so many African-American mothers and grandmothers and aunties do. Um, so it was uh, several years um, before I finally um, got a job in IT, and that's how um, I started my career in IT and uh, really kind of transitioned out of the art and in the um, English lit place where I was, where my degree is in, to this IT um, world. And that offered uh, a great deal more um, opportunities, but it was very different from my experience, very different. And so I always call that my God moment. I never could have gotten there with my English lit degree and only a BA, not even a master's, if that door hadn't been opened from my perspective. And mm-hmm. um, that's, uh, that was the beginning of what has been a 13-year uh, um, journey where in which seven of those I was also concurrently writing on the NEMEA Cipher Report. And uh, the Nemea Cipher Report initially, like many people who start blogs, was initially a place for me to process my um, experiences and um, not only my childhood experiences, but the things that had happened to me um, along the way. And um, I started it that, and then I realized as I was writing these different stories about things that had happened to me, divorces and abandonment and death and, you know, different, it, having to escape from my father a second time because we went, we went back to Africa with my brother and sister, not my mother, but myself, my brother and sister. We went back when I was 17 and ended up having to escape a second time. So I, I started writing about these, but then I saw the world is such a bigger place. If I experience these kinds of things, even though it's anomalous, in terms of the African-American or even American experience, the people outside of this country, my story resonated closer to their experiences. And just like people looked at me and could not see the, the, the journey or the depth um, that I had to rise from, the same thing is occurring 
to other people all around the world. And that's kind of where I got to the place where I said, you know, this should be a, a place where there's a voice for the voiceless and an alternate news source. And that's yeah. how that morphed. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's awesome. What what a fantastic story. Because it's not just one of um, triumph through adversity. It's one of someone who, you know, you you apparently are very, very intelligent and very skilled in a number of different areas, but you were able to take the things that you felt from within and, and develop them into something that is um, it's an outlet uh, that touches the lives of others as well. And um, I think that's a hard transition for a lot of people to make, um, especially when, you know, still processing and going through some of the things that you've been through in your life. I agree. I agree. And I, and I have to say that it took me years to process it. And only very recently after my father passed did I really appreciate, you know, the full scope of everything that he was uh, struggling with and also the great benefit that um, we myself in particular, because I'm more connected to Africa than my siblings, you know, that we garnered because of that experience, because he was able to walk his talk. There were many people that talked the Back to Africa movement and this and that and the other, but when it came down to it, they weren't willing to make that sacrifice. So I wouldn't be the person that I am today had I not had those experiences um, and like many people in life, the level or the, of intensity may have be different, but we all have, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly experiences. And it's whether or not you get broken by it is what enables you to, to rise and help other people because people just need to know that they're not alone in whatever their suffering is. It you know, just so happens that mine is in the international and religious arena, um, but it's you know, it's the same. You can apply it to a number of different um, areas. So, yes, I I was able to turn that and process that after many, many years. I mean, my father died last year. So I would say really starting last year was when I finally was able to come fully outside of me to begin to see how I could help on an international level other people because it was no longer about me and my experiences. I came to realize that as parents, you know, we're always constantly struggling to balance our past with our children's future. So Mm. that's where I got. Now I'm still very curious about your return. Um, First of all, what did your mother think of that? And you had those memories. Um, did you think things would be different when you went back, or what was your thinking? No, I, I like I said, I was seventeen, so I didn't have any illusions that he would that it would be difficult, and that he would more than likely try to keep us. But you know, as a mother, and I know this must have been incredibly difficult for her, but. She did not want us at some later date in life to blame her because we were not given the opportunity to have a relationship. 
with our father. And the challenge lay in the fact that they were not divorced, in addition to the Islam, but they were not divorced. So there was no custody decree in place. Um, but she said we could go and visit, but we had to make the choice. We either all went or we all stayed. And my brother and sister wanted to go. And I knew that if they went alone, I would never see them again. And that mm. was how we um, ended up, the three of us, going back to visit him. And at that time, he was in uh, Nigeria, and he was living, living in the northern part where, you know, the birthplace of Boko Haram. And mm. um, it was, you know... It, it turned out to be um, a very harrowing experience because as soon as we landed, you know, he took away all of our passports, he took away all of our money, and he made us call my mother and tell her that we were never coming back and that she needed to send a trans our school transcripts so that he could uh, enroll us in school. And um, he took my brother with him every day. He never left my brother with us, um, partly because it's women's work to cook and clean and all of that, but um, primarily because he knew I would never leave without my brother. Um, and how I was able to escape that time was um, the last day, once again, the last day of classes, he left my brother home. And... I took that opportunity to to escape. You know, I, I said, we have to go. They were traumatized, you know. I mean, they feared him, but they also loved him, loved him mm-hmm. deeply, and they didn't want to leave. And so we go to a next-door neighbor, and a uh, German lady, and I'm banging on the door, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, we got to get out. My dad's kidnapped me. Can you take us to the main road? Because we were on the university, and we need to get to the main road. And she said, who's your father? And I told her. And she said, oh, no, I can't help you, and slammed the door in my face. You know, he had that. He was feared that much. So we ended up um, walking and getting a ride to the main road, and um, we caught one of those uh, little lorry jitney buses, and the driver led us on with no money. I mean, once again, it was like the hand of God, and he led mm-hmm. us on this thing with no money. And they're like, there's a goat on there, and there's a chicken, and I mean, it's crowded, it's so hot. And um, I'm looking out the window, and every Peugeot that went by. I just thought it was my father chasing us down. So it was reminiscent of the Tanzania escape. But um, one of the things that happened was when my dad made us call my mother, she was able to tell before he hung, slammed the phone down, she was able to communicate to me that the embassy was no longer, that not to go to Lagos, but to actually go to Zaria, where the consulate was. And um, we were going in that direction, and he was going in Lagos. So I have no oh. doubt that mm-hmm. had he, had we gone to Lagos, he would have caught us, and had he known that we were going um, the opposite direction. And we get 
there, uh, finally, after what seemed like a million hours, and we get to the consulate, and it's closed. And mm. dusk is falling, and I just couldn't believe it. Like, I, I just had no more strength. I had no more energy, and I just collapsed on the stairs to the consulate because I just didn't have any more. And out comes this woman. She had forgotten her purse. She was a secretary in the consulate. And she had forgotten her purse, and she had gone back to get her purse. And <laughs> I explained to her, yeah, it was amazing. And I explained to her the situation. And she you know, that he, my, if my dad caught us, he would kill me. And she said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. You come with me. And so she put us up for the night. And then the next day, she took us back to the consulate. And um, we ended up staying there while, you know, my parents um, and the government, State Department and the Nigerian government kind of battled it out over, you know, where we were going to remain. And um, eventually, the next day, my dad comes and, like, storms the consulate, which, you know, you don't do. But he was that irate, and he claimed that, you know, America was kidnapping his children, and, you know, it, it was not very pretty at all. Um, but uh, what he asked was that we, you know, he wanted to see each of us individually, and um, he he had told the um, he had told them that if we said we wanted to leave, he would let us go. And um, if we wanted to stay, then we would have to leave with him. And, of course, my brother and sister, they wanted to stay. Or they didn't really want to stay, but they just didn't want to defy him. And I said we wanted to leave, and we all had to leave together, um, to which he was very, he responded very cruelly to me um, with expletives. But the end result was um, we, the Nigerian government decided it didn't want to get involved in what was essentially um, an American affair. And, um, no, it was uh, one of the unknown agencies that uh, ended up uh, getting us out and getting and returning us, uh, putting us on a plane and returning us to the States, to my mother. Wow. I'm sure she was frantic. She was know. absolutely frantic, but she was an amazing, is an amazing woman of God. And mm. she said despite what people told her, she held on to the promise, and she wouldn't listen. She said, I know my children are coming back. I don't care how long it takes. I know they're coming back. So she did, and we did. Wow, Ayanna. You know, I meant to start off by saying I know there will have to be a part two to this. I just don't know what to call it yet. Because <laughs> I knew we would not be able to get through everything that um, I've been able to sort of, you know, just briefly browse in your life and so many things just said, wow, there's a, a story there and a story there and a story there. So I I just tried my best, but I <laughs> knew I wouldn't be able to touch as much as I'd like to. But um, you have a very, very interesting story to tell. And I always find with great people um, and people who will be great, 
they always have this story that sort of lays out a map. It's sort of an outline to something much bigger. And when you ask the question, could someone become this amazing person, you you have that story already. And just there's that one piece missing from from now to then that's just left. And um, I know that you're going to do amazing things. And um, I would love to talk with you again and even on some other topics that I think that you could be a, a great expert on and help us out with as well in the future. Um, you have an initiative that you would like to um, also talk about, and I wanted to make sure we had a little time left to be able to talk about that. Yes, um, it's called the Zimbabwe Farm Project, and amazingly, um, and I hope that I conveyed the humanity of my father, because I, I, I did love my father and do love my father, but he passed. He had lived in uh, Zimbabwe uh, for almost 40 years. Um, he moved there because it, finally he found a country and a leader um, in Mugabe that, you know, represented his values and, and, and uh, liberation for African people. So he, he had a small farm there. And uh, when he died, um, my brother, neither my brother nor my sister, wanted to keep the land. And so they gave it to me. And um, I started uh, late last year, hired a farm manager and a um, landskeeper, caretaker, and started uh, building out the farm. And throughout that process, we have provided like over 60 people um, jobs in terms of uh, tasks, projects, um, bringing water to the farm, um, building temporary housing, um, and and farming. And it has just uh, grown, and we have continued to, to make investments. We continue to hire people. But there are some things that, um, that we need that will uh, continue to assist the community. We, I make no money off of this project. The food, we just did a, a harvest of corn. They harvested corn. It was four tons. And um, wow. we gave, yeah, some of that to the employees of the farm. We gave um, quite a bit of that to the orphanage that is right next door to our property. There's a, a girls' orphanage there um, um, called Fountain of Hope. And um, so we gave them several hundred pounds. And then the rest of it we sold so that we could um, buy uh, water tanks so that we can uh, have irrigation on the farm. And uh, eventually, uh, as we continue to bring on uh, additional employees, but we want to buy like a tractor. And this may seem like such a simple thing, but in this entire community, it's called Christian Bank, there are only two tractors, and everyone mm. has to schedule the use of these tractors, and you rent them, and you rent the drivers. And so at any given time, if either one of them are not working, and if you go to the website, you'll see at one point we had to um, use ox plows because the, neither one of the tractors were working. So to have another tractor in the community would be of great benefit um, to the entire community as well as the employees of the farm because it will be yet another um, economic opportunity for them and for the community. 
Um, so we're into our fourth harvest right now. Um, they planted sugar beans. And it's it's something that uh, it's a way of sowing back into the lives of the people and the women and the um, young girls who are in the orphanage next door. And uh, my next goal would be to um, perhaps uh, to bring technology there in that community cell services absolutely abysmal so there's just it, it's sorely lacking in technology um, that's not to say that Zimbabwe is lacking in technology but that community is, is lacking in um, technology and communications infrastructure um, so you know that would be my next goal that and perhaps some type of solar energy um, solution mm, because yeah. how they have rolling power outages there um, almost daily, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that would be another initiative that I'm interested in um, in implementing. Wow. Well, that's awesome. Um, all I want to do is just, you know, continue to keep abreast of this, and if you could at least let us know what your progress is. And um, your fundraising, too, I wanted people to be able to understand where they can give. Um, is that set up as yet? Um, we have a Kickstarter campaign um, that we'll be launching. And if people want to see what has happened and where we're going, all they need to do is visit the website. It's um, They can learn more about me. They can listen to the interview. And one of the tabs on the website will take you to a page where you can see all the photos um, of what has been accomplished, timelines, meet the farm people, and um, where we're going in the future, um, what our goals and objectives are, um, what type of funding we need, and, and how people can, can help um, take this to the next level and help Zimbabweans to become self-sufficient and, uh, and eventually to buy more land so that we can continue to expand this. So you, they will be able to learn so much more pictures, you know, a thousand words. You know, so yeah, there are a lot yeah. of pictures there. Mm -hmm. All right, Ayanna. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And can't wait to have you on again. Look yeah. forward to it. And um, loved your story. And uh, I'm sure our listeners did as well. Thank you so much, Mike. And I really appreciate the opportunity to have shared my story and um, the exciting project and the Zimbabwe Farm Project with your audience. Thank you again. Okay. Be well. If I may paraphrase Stephen King, the most important things are the hardest things to say. These are the things you feel ashamed of because mere words only diminish the thought. You see, words shrink things that seem limitless when they were in our hearts and minds to no more than just living size when brought out into the open. Oh, but it's more than that, isn't it? You see, the most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried. Like landmarks to a treasurer, your enemies would love to steal away and use against you at the worst possible moment. But still, you make revelations that cost you dearly only to have people look at you like you're crazy, not understanding what you've said at all or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried when you were saying it. Do you know what's even worse than that? Is when the secret 
stays locked within, and you can't get it out. Not for want of the courage to talk about it, but for want of someone who will just listen. Just listen. As someone who spends a great deal of time searching for the truth, the lesson that I've learned from this quote is, if you want the truth, you have to be prepared to release all judgment and be open enough to hear and accept the truth in whatever form it might take. Judgment alters the truth by changing how it's told or presented. Not accepting the truth stops the bearer from sharing the truth. Ignoring the truth kills ambition and is a recipe for disaster and makes success impossible. We all over the years have learned to guard ourselves against deception, but I've also come to realize that in most cases, you don't even have to discover or discern the truth. You just have to let it be and see it for what it is. Maybe you have a story too. It doesn't have to be just like the one we've heard. Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm here, and I'm willing to listen. All I ask from you is a measure of truth. Well, we've come to the end of another awesome show. Special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. But before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits come your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.